Well, I just keep finding things to talk to you about with respect to this issue of grace and wisdom, so bear with me. How many would like more wisdom? Well, that's good. Maybe, maybe God's causing me to do this, huh? Open your Bibles, if you would, to Matthew chapter 6. We're going to read some wisdom here. Anybody ever worry or, or you find yourself anxious about things in life? Yes. Just a few of you. Okay, not, not everybody. All right. This is what Jesus says. Verse 25, I tell you, do not worry. Do not worry about your life. Do you know this is not a suggestion, this is a command? And if you obey the command, though the tendency, the temptation in our flesh, our insecurities may drive us to worry, be anxious and fearful over certain kinds of things, temporal things, he says, don't worry. And when you worry and when you're anxious, you insult God. Did you know that? It's sin. Because he says what? How many times does he say, trust me, on nearly every page of this book called the Bible? He says, trust me, trust me, trust me. So he says, do not worry. Is that wisdom? Yes. Do not worry about your life. Do not worry about what you will eat or drink or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food and the body more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the lilies of the field grow. They do not labor or spin, yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. And if that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? So do not worry, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. It's a matter of priority, isn't it? When we are seeking first his kingdom and his will, we're, we're holding the things that terrorize us and worry us, we hold them at bay, we relegate them to second, third, fourth, fifth priority on that list, we really say, Lord, I'm going to seek you. I want to seek your will. I want to seek what you want in my life. I'm going to seek wisdom. Make that the priority. Then you find you're not anxious. You're not going to worry. You're not going to be fretful over those things. And God is honored. And then you begin to experience his blessing. So we've been talking about this subject of wisdom. And this is an example of, of wisdom to us. And last time we looked at seven principles that actually guide us or govern uh, our making wise decisions, God-honoring decisions. Seven simple principles. Uh, grace, motivation, and by the way, if you look at your notes, you'll notice they're different this morning from typically what they normally have been. I'm experimenting. 
So I don't know where we're going to land, but I'm just experimenting, changing the notes some. So I've given you much more than, than we have in the past, and you're not going to have to be burdened with filling in the blanks and missing blanks. And So if your mind wanders, you at least have the notes there that you can read them later. <laughs> Grace motivation. <laughs> Grace motivation is the first of those principles. Submission to the lordship of Jesus Christ, remember, was a second principle if we're going to make wise decisions that will guide us. And, and then matching our commitments to our own growth and our own gifting and abilities. And In other words, knowing who we are and, and uh, where we are in terms of our growth. The issue of necessity, there's some things that just have to be done. One lady told me last night, she says, I, I, I can't get it out of my mind. I've got to do the dishes. <laughs> she says, I can't, I can't go to bed now with the dishes in the sink. Isn't that glorious? <laughs> Nothing like waking up in the morning to a clean kitchen. The issue of human need guides us, and the issue of the trustworthiness of God guides us in making wise decisions. And lastly, we looked at the issue of, or the principle of body orientation. Now, given all of those seven, those seven principles, the, the issue becomes how, how can you weigh and balance all these factors and, and come out with a truly wise and God-honoring decision? How do I use these factors? That was the question posed. How do I actually use them? And so then I want to talk to you about how to use those factors this morning. How do you know whether to launch out in faith on some new venture? You have, say, you have a vision, you have a dream for something. How do you know to launch out in faith on that thing and you don't have a lot of solid uh, uh, evidence or, 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 or uh, uh, material confidence to go on? Or, and then you look at that and then you, then you kind of look and try to face the facts, so to speak, and then you consider, well, maybe it's not feasible. So you want to launch out, but you're thinking maybe it's not feasible. How do you know which way to go? How do you know how to make that decision? Am I making sense? How do you balance the, 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 the really competing claims between uh, individual guidance and corporate guidance? We talked about body orientation and, and getting wise counsel. How do you balance that between uh, your own individual sense of, of what you think is right? How do you balance those things? How do you weigh your own gifts and your own limitations, your abilities and talents uh, against the needs of others? Where, where do you fit when other people are involved? How do you weigh those things? Only God can see all the factors involved in any decision that we make. I think we all agree to that. Only God can see all those factors in, in any decision that we make. And yet, that being true, he has chosen not to diminish us by doing the job for us, making the decision for us. He knows everything about every choice that faces us. How many have discovered that he seldom takes the easy way in training us? When people talk to me about doing something, and I say, what are your options? And we, we kind of weigh out the options. And uh, I'll say, you know, it's probably safe to take the hardest route, the more demanding route. Because I see that pattern. God, God very, very seldom takes the easy way in training us. He sets before us the demanding and yet infinitely worthwhile task of making these decisions ourselves. 
foolish and faithful, or faithless, I should say, though we often are. He chooses to let us struggle. He chooses to let us fail. He chooses to let us struggle again, doesn't he? So that in the process, this is so key, so that in the process we may learn the meaning of true wisdom and true commitment. And we only learned it in the process. But every step of the way, he's with us. Every step of the way, he is with us. He's here to encourage. He's there to close the door, uh, shed some additional light, smooth the way in some instances for us, and even sometimes to pick up the pieces if needed, and all the while deepening our lives, enriching our lives by the experience. Now let me remind you that God has promised wisdom to those who ask him for it. Remember that? James chapter 1, verse 5. If anyone lacks wisdom, he should ask God, and how will God give it? Generously. He wants us to have wisdom. See, when you lack it, and you know you lack it, I don't know what to do. I don't, know, I don't have wisdom for this situation. God, give me wisdom. However he's going to give it to you, he's going to give it to you because he wants you to have it because he's charged you with making responsible decisions. Does that make sense? Does that follow? And so we can seek for wisdom, and we can find what we seek. Now, God will not necessarily tell you exactly what to do in any given situation. But if you diligently seek him, remember Jesus said, keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking, perseverance, Just because you don't get an answer right away, don't panic. Keep on. Persevere asking. Persevere seeking. And if we persist in that process, if we diligently seek his will, he will give us the wisdom to understand all the various factors involved and to understand what principles will be, in fact, applicable in that particular situation. God is faithful to do what he said he would do. It's almost like God turns on the light. Have you ever had that happen? You're waiting and waiting and praying and thinking and talking and wondering and ed, 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 and tossing back and forth, back and forth. And all of a sudden, all of a sudden, one day, it, when you least expect it, boop, the light turns on. It's just like things have not been connecting, and then they just all of a sudden line up. Anybody ever have that happen? It happens to me all the time. All the time. Now, he doesn't tell us, as I said, Uh, exactly what to do in any given situation, but he does give us the kind of spiritual light that helps us to understand the issues that are involved in all the alternative courses of action that we have arrayed before us. God will give us light. And then we can choose a way that honors him. I love what Isaiah says, Isaiah chapter 42, I will lead the blind by ways they have not known, Along unfamiliar paths I will guide them. I will turn the darkness into light before them and make the rough places smooth. Isn't that glorious? It's just like he causes the light. And in fact, in in Psalm 112, uh, verse 4, he says he'll cause light to rise in the midst of the darkness for the upright. So when you least expect it and you're seeking for light, he will cause the light to die. He'll turn on the light for you. I love that. I always have that hope. My future 
is, is not hopeless. My future is hopeful. He always promises as I seek him and wait on him to turn on the light. Jesus said it another way in John's Gospel, chapter 16, when he said, uh, but when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. When, when God says in Isaiah, you'll turn on the light, he's talking about the Holy Spirit giving us light, giving us understanding, illuminating our thinking. And let me also say that God does not expect that we unfailingly make the perfectly wise or perfectly correct decision at every moment. People get, can get immobilized by that because I have to make the perfect decision. He does not demand instantaneous perfection in wisdom any more than in any other area of our life. He knows how we are formed. He knows that we're made out of what? Dust. Though we are fearfully and wonderfully made, we are still imperfect creatures. But he does, however, demand that we attempt to make the wisest decision possible under the circumstances. He doesn't demand perfection, but he wants us to make the wisest decision possible. He does ask that we do the best we can with the wisdom he's given us, whether that be the one-talent wisdom or the five-talent wisdom. Remember the, the parable of the stewards and responsibility? How much wisdom have you been given? How much knowledge, how much insight have you been given? He expects you to do the best with what you've been entrusted. Just like the parable of the stewards. And we can trust his unfailing providence to undergird us in all that we do. So our part, our part simply, is to do our best and trust him. Trust his providence. He brings about the results, doesn't he? I said a moment ago that God doesn't require instantaneous perfection in our decisions, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't strive for excellence or perfection. Knowing we're not going to be perfect, shouldn't we still strive for it? Let me remind you what the Apostle Paul said in Philippians chapter 3, the marvelous verses, verse 12. He says, not that I have already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. I press on. I press on. He says, Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. He calls us to, to rise up, to press on. Come on. It's like God's going, come on, come on, come on, keep coming, keep coming. You're not alone. Isn't that glorious? So although we never achieve perfection at any point in this life, we still, in fact, press on towards it. So God does not hold us responsible for making the one and only perfect decision at every point on life's road. He only asks us to do the best of which we are capable. Do the best of which you're capable. And all of us basically underestimate ourselves, don't we? We underestimate what we can do. I mean, I'm always telling my son, you can do better. You can do better. I'm always telling people, you can do better. You're better than that. You're better. People typically don't think of themselves as better than that. You're better than that. You can do better. And they go, I am? I can? I can do better? 
Yes. You'd be amazed at what you can do. Awesomely so. Now, in the learning process, as we discussed that, in the learning process, are we bound to make many, many mistakes? Can mistakes be a source of discouragement to us? They don't have to be. They don't have to be. God doesn't mean for our mistakes in this process to be a source of discouragement. Because as we keep on taking responsibility to be faithful, to use whatever wisdom, whatever insight, whatever knowledge that he's given us, then we will grow in our ability to choose and to do those things which most please him. In other words, you get more and more familiar with that which pleases him. It's not that you just know because you read it in the Bible, but you know experientially. Your life pattern is developing in such a way that you know this is the path to go because you've been trained by experience. But in that experience, you've made mistakes which have helped you learn. And God is not offended by your mistakes. He's not blown away by your mistakes. Now the question is, if we really do, and this is important, if we really do accept the fact that God gives us the responsibility to make our own decisions, even to the point of allowing us to make our own mistakes, if we accept that fact, then I think we will be able to avoid an error that many, many Christians make. And that is of second-guessing. Second-guessing what God's perfect decision may be in a given situation. Lots of people fall into that trap and they, they say, well, I could do this, I could, but I, I want to know exactly what God's will is. I want to do the best, perfect decision. Now, it's okay to strive for that. But sometimes we get immobilized because we think we have to make the perfect decision. And we won't. We won't. There is, in a sense, uh, in which God is, God's will for our lives includes every tiniest decision. Think about that. God's will for your life includes, encompasses every, every detail, even the tiniest decision and, and turn in, in life's road. How is that? Let me give you an example. Even the most trivial act, such as choosing which side of the street to walk on, would that be a trivial kind of a thing? Yeah. Well, let's, let's contextualize it in terms of God's will. Which side of the street to walk on? That may prove to be a matter of immense importance in God's purposes for our life. For instance, if we walk on the east side of the street, we just might meet someone who would change the entire course of our life. Think about that. You're walking, you're walking down the street, and you cross over, and you meet somebody. If you had not crossed over, you'd have never met that person, and the whole course of your life would have never gone the direction it did, good or bad, right or wrongly, from a human perspective. Unforeseeable consequences of walking down that side of the road or that side of the road, guess what? They are not our concern. They're not our concern. Because you can get caught up in worrying about, oh, should I walk down that side? 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 You drive yourself crazy with that. Don't worry, he says. <laughs> Don't worry. If God purposes that we should meet that person on the east side of the street, he 
is able, if he so desires, to put into our hearts the unaccountable urge to cross the street. But I think that it's much more likely that the crossing of the street would take place as a result of what might strike us, what might seem to us from our perspective as coincidence or the result of absent-mindedly crossing the street or just even simple stupidity. We just walk across the street. <laughs> just duh. That's from our perspective. But if God wants you on the other side of the street and he deems it absolutely critically necessary in his plan that you're going to be on the other street, you're going to be on the other side of the street. The mystery is how it all works together. God does not ask us to weigh the imponderables. He does not ask us to second-guess purposes of his that are beyond our foresight. That's way beyond us. There are some things, because we're fallible, uh, that are unsearchable. He says, my ways are not your ways. My ways are higher than your ways. We don't have to figure out ahead of time whether God wants us on this side of the street or that side of the street. We choose what seems best and leave the results to him. And this may, this may seem obvious when you think about the minor decisions of life, kind of like crossing the street or not crossing the street. But it's equally true when it comes to the more important matters of life, like choosing a vocation or a marriage partner. Would you agree? I mean, the more significant the issue, then the more critical it becomes in terms of what your choice is and what's God's will for your life and so forth. No one in his right mind could take those kinds of, seri- those kinds of decisions lightly. I don't take them very seriously. Who am I going to marry? That's the rest of my life, for better or for worse. Those kinds of decisions are filled with all kinds of possibilities, aren't they? Some of those possibilities you can foresee, some of them you can't foresee. Some of them have just become very clear, very apparent, but some of them you just are clueless. You take a job, you go... You never, you never foresaw what you would find yourself involved with down the road when you decided to take that job. There's all manner of things. If we're confronted with major decisions and a major decision and we weigh all the factors as best we know how, and especially considering those seven principles I suggested earlier, and we conclude, in confronted with that decision, we conclude that either of the two actions appears equally wise and equally honoring to God, then so far as our responsibility is concerned, it doesn't matter which one we choose. Obviously, whichever choice will have far-reaching consequences, but that's not our business, that's God's. That's where we stop. We make the choice. The wisest choice, the best choice we know how. The consequences, the long-term things are in God's hands. And if he sees that the decision is not going in the direction that he wants it to go, can he change it? Yes, he can. Yes, he can. Our responsibility is simply to make the wisest choice we know how to make. And again, trust him. If the available alternatives to us in terms of choice appear completely equal, and that's really never really true. Choices are never really completely equal. And the choice has to be made immediately 
where the pressure is on, then there's no reason why we shouldn't go ahead and make the decision based on personal preference, based on maybe even a hunch. I just, I just, I just know that I should go this way. Or maybe even based on, and I have done this, the toss of a coin. Maybe not. (laughs) I have been known to be wrong. All timing, isn't it? (laughs) Making some decisions can be a very dangerous thing. A very dangerous thing, very threatening to some people. God has never promised to remove all the perils from the path that we take. He said, He said, I'll smooth out your path, but He's not promised to remove all the perils from the path that we take. Yet whatever our path and wherever it may lead we can still walk with confidence because God's gracious, all-wise providence goes with us every step of the way. Every step of the way. Now, he may indeed leave almost all of life's decisions strictly up to us, but he never leaves us alone in the process. He said, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. I'll not abandon you. And he can be counted upon to respond to our decisions. He's not unprepared. He is totally prepared. And he can respond to our decisions always in the very best way possible. Romans 8, 28. I love this verse. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. God's promise to work my decisions for my good. And he may respond either before or after my decision. It's amazing how he works. Amazing how he works. And he can respond by definite direction. We talked about this, didn't we? He can direct. He can speak to you in a dream. We have evidence of that in the Scriptures. The Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 16 wanted to go to Bithynia. But Luke records that the Spirit of Jesus forbid him to go. How, we're not told. But later that night he has a dream. A dream in which a man from Macedonia appeals to him to come over and help them. And Paul concludes that God is calling him to respond by going. So God gives Paul in that section, in that passage, direction through a dream about where to go and when to go. So he may guide us. He may give us direction through a dream. He may give us direction through some unshakable inner conviction or by giving a group of people um, an inescapable prayer burden or through some compelling set of circumstances or even through a a phrase out of Scripture, a, a word out of Scripture that's even out of context. He can use that, can't he? But none of these means of direction, though he may use them, though he may choose them, none of these means of direction should be sought after. They should be sought for. That 
that's starting to get treading out there on some thin ice. He could do it. He will do it. But they shouldn't be sought after, nor should any of these be taken in and of themselves as incontrovertible proof that God is leading. Countless Christians have experiences such as these that lead them to imagine that God is directing them when in fact he is not directing them. But when God actually does lead, when he actually does direct, I suspect that his voice will be unmistakable. When he wants you to know something, you will know it. There will be no doubt in your mind at all. He will get through to you in a very clear way. But as I have said repeatedly before, direction is not God's normal way of operating. That is not his normal way of operating. He leaves us, his normal way is to leave us to make the choices that Christian responsibility requires. And then, through his incomparable wisdom, certain very ordinary seeming things happen to us. How does he fold all of that into his incredible will is beyond me, but I'm glad that he can do it and he does do it. A door will open here. A door will close there. By chance, I meet this person, or by design, I meet that person. By necessity, or perhaps even lightheartedly, I make this choice or that decision. And then afterwards, with 20-20 hindsight... We look back on it all, and, and it just adds up to this incredible pattern that you would never have dreamed of ahead of time. You just look and you say, who would have... Ha? I mean, if I could just tell you how my wife and I met, you just go, unbelievable. How all of those details woven together, and we've been married almost 25 years now. I look and I think... Whew. Awesome. Absolutely awesome. We find that day after day, month after month, year after year, God has indeed been directing our lives. He's not left us alone. He has been directing. And sometimes in the most imperceptible ways. It's like you just you can't feel him, you can't sense him. But it's a faith issue, isn't it? He says he's there. He says he'll guard us. He'll direct our steps. God directs our lives in ways that are utterly past our understanding. I love what Jeremiah says. In the final analysis, this is where we come. He says, I know, O Lord, that a man's life is not his own. It is not for a man to direct his steps. I may plan in my heart the way I should go. But the Bible says that God directs my steps. He's going to get me to where he wants me to be. And he weaves all of my decisions and choices in that. Unbelievable. And the most incredible part of all this, and this is really blows your mind, the most incredible part of all this is that ultimately even our mistakes fit into the pattern. Certain mistakes, note this, certain mistakes, in his infinite kindness, he will abort. He will block. I've often said, God, blunt the harvest of my foolishness. 
God, blunt the harvest of my foolishness. And many times he has. But there's certain other mistakes, and many times very serious ones, that he allows to bear their terrible fruit in our life. And this turns out to be a kindness. A kindness. How can you call it a kindness? Don't you see what I'm suffering? Don't you see what I'm going through? Why would God allow this to happen to me? Anybody ever thought that? Don't even raise your hand, I know. It's a kindness. You say, why? How could that be a kindness? Because he knows that some of the worst mistakes spring from a radical defect deep down in our hearts. And that defect will never be corrected unless and until we see it for what it is through the fruit that it bears. When you look at the fruit of some of your choices in life and you go, oh, brings you to a point of what Paul calls godly sorrow. And that godly sorrow turns you in repentance. If you never saw it, or God diminished or blunted it, that defect would never be addressed in your life. Never have the attention that it requires. So he lets us fall on our faces. He lets us. He lets us make a mess of things. He he lets us lose precious months and even years from our lives. He allows the wounds to pierce deep into our hearts. But beloved, when we come through on the outside, on the other side of that, we find that God has done something in us and he has done something for us that we will be eternally grateful for all of our days. God, your wounds have been faithful. Thank you. Thank you. Out of foolishness and ugliness, he has brought his own wisdom and beauty. We bring brokenness, pain, ugliness, foolishness, and he marvelously, miraculously transforms it into that which is wise and beautiful and good. But that's the way that God does things. Witness Calvary. The ugliness of Calvary. The folly, the foolishness of Calvary. And out of that, he brings the beauty and he brings the cleansing of redemption. That's the way he does things. He's redeeming. He's a redeeming God. He's a redeeming God. He's a transforming God. Out of our own weakness, he brings strength. You're weak, he's going to bring strength. He's going to bring strength. It's his will. He's going to work it in your life. You think about a God like that, who would not want to love him? Who would not want to serve him? Who would not want to honor him? Who would not want to trust the wise and loving providence of such a God? He is an awesome God, isn't he? Let me read to you from Isaiah chapter 61. Jesus quoted these words, When he went to the synagogue in Nazareth, you recall, he said, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. What is it that the poor need to hear? Good news. God has good news for us. Good news. Good news. 
He says, he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. You can see a, a person who's broken needs to be bound up. They need to be healed. They need to be held. They need to be encouraged, supported. He says to proclaim freedom for the captives and release for the prisoners. Jesus is saying, if you're, if you're captive to something, if something has cap- taken you captive, if your life is a slave to something, I've come to set you free. If you're sitting here this morning and there's something that's enslaved your life, Jesus will set you free. If you'll truly turn to him, if you'll truly say, Jesus, set me free from this, I want to be free, really. He can read your heart. He knows if you're serious, doesn't he? And he'll set you free. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, his grace, God is gracious, and the day of vengeance of our God. It is coming to conform, or to comfort all who mourn and to provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. And I love this last part. And they will be called oaks of righteousness. Oaks of righteousness. What a what a picture. What do you see in your mind's eye when you see an oak tree? Solid, well, deeply grounded. Just, you can't push it over. It's a tough tree. They will be called oaks of righteousness. Now notice this. A planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. Lord, display your splendor in this life. Would you agree? Would you say that, Lord, display your splendor in this life? How does it happen? By you faithfully, faithfully following after him, not worrying, trusting him, and pressing on, pressing on, to lay hold of that which Christ Jesus laid hold of you, to make wise, God-honoring decisions. Amen? Amen. Thank you, Lord. We love you this morning. Father, we worship you. Your purposes are awesome, wonderful, good for us. You train us, you teach us, you're growing us up, Lord. We are not helpless. We have everything we need for life and godliness. You have provided it, Lord. You've taken away all of our excuses. Lord, it is time for us to stand up and be counted, to be faithful. And Lord, indeed, that you will make us into those oaks of righteousness for the splendor of your glory. Thank you, Father. We love you this morning. Amen? Amen. Let's stand together. Let's sing his praises together.